On episode 225, I'm interviewing Ginny Karubian, founder and CEO of Ready to Launch. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. My guest today is Ginny Karubian, founder and CEO of Ready to Launch. Founded in 2014, Ready to Launch is a consultancy based in LA that helps firms launch new ideas, products, and technologies that better serve their customers. Ginny has extensive experience as an ethnographer, researcher, and is a professor of anthropology, sociology, and gender studies. Ginny, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Damon. So you started an agency 2014. I've just got to like start the conversation with why in the world did you start an agency? I mean, I've started, obviously I've started a couple of companies. It, it's really hard to start a company. An agency is like, for me, would be conceived, considered to be one of the really hard hard things, right? Because you've got to, you've got to be a hunter and you've also got to be a farmer uh, and you've got to be invoicing and the, and the whole rest of it as well. So I think it's something, some hybrid of I'm a glutton for punishment, but I'm also very dedicated. Probably why I started the agency. Uh, but also really, I'm very much in love with the research process, and I also enjoy working with clients. I enjoy so many aspects of working in the research industry that working for a much larger agency doesn't give the opportunity to work on projects from end to end um, the way that it does in an ownership and leadership position. So I think that that motivated a lot of the reason why I wanted to start my, start my own business. So I get the why you'd want to start it maybe, but I mean, the there's risk when you start a business, right? I mean, not only is it a time sink, but it's a, it's a, there's a lot of money there. What gave you that courage to be able to step out and do it yourself? Initially, it was out of necessity. So when I finished school, I got out of school right in the middle of the financial crisis. And at that time, uh, while recovery was just starting to happen, there really weren't any jobs for recent graduates. And what I found is that companies were willing to give me project work, which now everyone calls the gig economy. Nobody called it the gig economy at that point. They just called it, yeah. we'll take you on as a contractor, but we won't give you a full-time job. And so at the right. time I needed work and I started picking up contracts as much as I could and networking and trying to um, work in market research on just a contract basis. And I didn't realize I had started my own company until I was in, I was actually chatting with one of my clients and my client was complaining that he had to go to an all day meeting. And I said, oh, I don't have to do those. And he said, yeah, that's why you own your own business. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I own my own business. Look at that. I, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it that way. It never came across in my mind as this is a risk or or um, thinking, weighing it against other options. I was just very focused on that. I wanted to work in research because I love doing research and I was going to do it however I needed to. 
And then after doing that for five years, um, just as a freelancer, then I started an agency. But at that point, I was so comfortable with it that I didn't that that the kind of fear and anxiety that you're describing just kind of wasn't there at that point. Yeah, there is something about like when I started Decipher having this almost I just didn't care about it not working. I mean, I wanted it to work a lot, but it was like okay, the worst case scenario is I'm going to get another job. And it just like fear didn't really enter into the equation. Whereas then, like, conversely now, you know, I'm starting a new business, which will be announced relatively soon. But there's a lot, I have a lot more sort of like, you know, life has a way of educating you on how terrifying it can be. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's so, so like, oh my gosh. You know, you all of a sudden you hear a stat like, I don't know, eight out of 10 startups fail or whatever. Or whatever. It starts informing that kind of like fear factor, which to your point, I think if it doesn't exist in a lot of ways, ignorance can be bliss. Right, right. And I I really like doing my own thing. I don't answer well to authority, just to be honest. Um, I do much better kind of running running my own show. And so just getting a little taste of freelancing at the very beginning set me off on this path to want to do my own thing. Um, so much so that it's it's scarier. The idea of going and working for someone else nine to five is much more frightening than having a business that may or may not stay afloat. Like that's, yeah. it's scarier giving up my freedom. Interesting, which is funny, right? Because you think about how much time you spend inside of the business and it's probably a lot more than you would spend working for somebody else. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work for crazy hours for somebody else that I work for myself. Absolutely not. Totally. But when it's for myself, it's much more fulfilling and it gives me a sense of purpose. Whereas I don't know if I would have, I feel that if I were working at two o'clock in the morning on some company initiative for someone else, then I would feel pretty resentful versus working on it for myself. Then there's that kind of uh, rush of adrenaline of, hey, this could work or right. the satisfaction of working on something that I think you know could be really successful. I heard a podcast recently and they were talking about entrepreneurship and what really makes entrepreneurs versus, you know, people that excel inside of established businesses, like a, you know, iconic firms like Google or Facebook or whatever, right? Agencies. And they actually boiled it down to really grades in, in high school and college. And they said people that get straight A's or excel in grades in academia can, are oftentimes really more bent on kind of refining and improving current processes Whereas people that tend to maybe not do as well in academia will be a little bit more in the rebellious or like, you know, I don't want to spend my time here. I'd rather spend it where I want to spend it sort of framework. So you're a bit of, you're kind of interesting in that obviously you're a professor of anthropology, sociology, and gender studies. So I have to believe you have like a stellar track record on in academia. High school, not so much. Uh. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Um, but I also think I've had some theories about this. I believe that once people go into the higher levels of academia, so I was ABD when I left graduate school, which translates to all but dissertation. So I spent six years doing graduate training, uh, essentially. In that, at those levels, there's very little that's translatable to working on teams and doing things that are in the workplace. Because at that level, it's all about training 
individual work and individual thought. Um, there's no, at that point, there's no group projects. There's no really working with other people. It's all, the focus is only on the individual mind. And so I think that coming out of that, the idea of going and working on teams and working in big companies really wasn't part of my mindset because I'd been trained as an individual for such a long time. Um, that might be a little different in the lower levels of college, but once, you know, once the master's degrees are completed and you get into those higher levels, it changes quite a bit. Interesting. So a successful founder, you know, congratulations. Thanks. What advice would you give somebody who is starting a business in this space today? I think that I know a lot of people like myself who started as moderators and worked, have started agencies as results or people who are moderating and are thinking about growing. And one of the key pieces of advice is that if moderating is all that they want to be doing or reporting or analyzing kind of the, the research process, if that's the only piece they want to be doing, then I wouldn't recommend starting an agency because really they should only be doing it if they're okay with doing all of the other business processes. Cause I think that that's something that I didn't really expect. Um, I came to this as a moderator slash researcher and all of a sudden I'm spending very little of my time doing that work anymore. I do a portion of it, but so much of my time is spent doing, uh, running the business. And so that, I think that would be the advice is be ready to, be doing not just the research skills, but also a whole lot of, you know, operations and management and invoicing and things like that, that are more on the business end. They need to be prepared for. Yeah. That's funny. It's, a lot of people I think have this misnomer where it's like, I'm going to spend my time doing the stuff I love and I'm really good at. Like maybe if you're technically inclined, it might be coding or if you're in sales, it might be sales and or whatever, right? Deliver project delivery, project delivery. But the reality is you actually spend a lot less time in that space and wind up having to, you know, hire out that sort of expertise so that you can focus on the actual business function and making sure that the wheels don't fall off the bus. Absolutely. I, I feel as though I, I'm spending a lot of time making up for the MBA that I never got. <laughs> <laughs> And reading a lot of business books because I never went to business school. I've never even taken a business class, um, wow. and yet I've owned a business for five years. So I do read quite a bit uh, to try and fill in that gap. So maybe that would be a secondary piece of advice for the entrepreneur that wants to start in this. If you don't have a business background, you should probably get to reading uh, as many books as you can. Exactly. So to make up for it. have you like surrounded yourself with some people in your network that you use as kind of references that might have that business expertise? Yes. And I've hired my team. Also, I have, I have some people on my team that are much more on the business side than on the research side. And that's been very, very helpful. So a couple of my, my research team there, they all have similar backgrounds to me. Uh, but then I have um, some people on marketing and project management that are much more uh, on the business side and the technology side. And that's been very helpful. Your website. So I combed through your website yesterday and in preparation for this, and I, I actually found something very interesting, at least to me, and unique inside of the inside of the market research space as it relates to a consultancy. And so what you've done is you've got a recommended met, set of methodologies that are set by specific verticals or industries, such as beauty, 
uh, tobacco, cannabis, alcohol, food and beverage, healthcare and pharma. So the reason I think that is so unique is, and, and just to describe it to the users, you would you know, select what your industry is and then it'll come up with a set of, I'll call it four, but it, it is a different number of you know, standardized approaches, uh, methodologies, you know, like ad testing or whatever, that uh, ANU or what have you, that um, uh, would be utilized in that specific industry. So I was curious, is that like, what's the strategy around that? Is it more of proof of expertise or is it you kind of like guiding the, the user in terms of where your area of specialty is? So that has a couple of objectives. Number one, we attract a lot of startups uh, to our agency. And I think part of it is because the name ready to launch is just a little bit sticky and appeals to the startup community. So a lot of folks who call our startups, they, a lot of them have never done research before and they're calling us and they're looking for a little bit of education. So that piece was to give a little bit of uh, client education so that if they are in, if they can find an industry that is relevant to them, then they can get an idea of what kind of research they might want to do. Most of the time when I have clients who call that have not done research before, typically they say they want either a focus group or a survey. You and I know that there are a variety of different methods that can be used, but for folks who are new to this game, they are not aware. So they usually use one of those two words. That was part of the motivation for having this recommended uh, recommended approaches by industry was to show what we can do. And those are based off of past projects that we've had that have been very successful. So those methodologies, that wasn't just something that we made up. That was based off of past projects that we've done um, to give and to, just to give them an idea of what they might want to be doing if they haven't really thought through it yet. I mean, that's, that's actually really powerful when you think about it, because it immediately, you know, as the lead comes in, then it immediately frames for you how you need to talk to them and, and what specifically about. I think it, it, at minimum, it creates a shortcut in the relationship as to is it fit or not fit. And, it, and also it creates a ton of like social trust because you're referencing a white paper or previous experiences that have been um, have been, have had successful outcomes, I guess I should say. So, I mean, that's like a, that's a really, that's a really interesting and cool hack that you applied. It almost felt like one of those like self-serve kind of options, right. but obviously it's not kind of like funnels down, but it was, it's a really cool hack. Thank you. And we, and I, I feel that it's been pretty effective because a lot of times when clients call, they've looked at that and they've gone through it before they've even gotten on the phone with me, which is wonderful. That was kind of the point of it so that they can get a little bit of education before they get on the phone and they can have an idea of what kinds of ways we might approach their category and also let them know that we have expertise in that category. Oftentimes, one of the questions people ask is, well, what do you research? The truth is we research everything, but that's a little bit nebulous for people who aren't familiar with kind of how market research works. So that's why we have it broken down industry by industry so that people can see things that are relevant to them, projects that we might have done in the past that could be relevant to the kind of work they're trying to do. So you've got extent, like of all the people I've interviewed, you have the most extensive experience in ethnographic research. How does ethnography fit into your approach? To begin with, ethnography is my 
training and my background. That's how I came into the industry initially from anthropology. And so it really informs the kind of work. It informs all of our kind of in-person approaches. Most of the researchers on my team um, have also were trained academically. So it's a lot of it, it's a viewpoint. And that viewpoint is that in order to really understand our consumers is we have to know them as people. And in order to get to know people as people, we need to sit with them and talk with them and see what their lives are like and understand their context and understand them as whole people, people that have families and homes and messy lives and things like that. So I think that that the approach, even though every project isn't ethnographic, the ethnographic viewpoint uh, informs all of the research that we're doing in terms of understanding consumers at that very human level. Think about some of the like big projects, big breakthrough projects that have happened inside of the industry. Like one of my favorite examples is the refrigerator box that I think it was Coke came up with, but maybe it was Pepsi. Anyway, it's it's the basically they take a I think it's 18 cans and it fits nicely inside of your refrigerator, right? You, you of course, I'm sure remember the story. So the ethnographers would live with the families. They identified that they would, the families would go to Costco. They would buy these big, you know, things of Coke or Pepsi and then so soda. And they would then, because they're so big, they didn't fit in their refrigerator. And then they would put it inside of their garage where it would sit because they're never cold. And they're out of reach when it's time to drink. Right. So what they, you know, out a byproduct of that ethnography was to create this like nifty little like can. It's even used it for beer now, right? So box that you could basically just kind of prop up. It fits really tightly in your refrigerator, so it's nice. And you kind of like, is is that like, is, are you doing that level of ethnography for some of your clients? Sure. Yeah, we certainly do. And then we've done a lot of things that are really foundational in terms of, uh, so we did a study that was, it was very high profile, so I can talk about it because it's been published and, and presented many, many times. Um, so this isn't uh, confidential, but we did one for the boating industry a couple of years back. And what there's a agency that handles all the marketing for the boating industry, and they had a big research initiative to find out who are their consumers. They had an idea in their minds of who their consumers were, but they realized that that might not actually be true. And so we went all over the country and we met people who were looking to buy boats. And we talked to people about all the things that they do for fun and all of how they spend their leisure time, how they're spending time with their families, what did they do before they had families. And what we came up with was this very interesting portrait of potential boat owners that was very different from what the assumption was in terms, in terms of their target consumers. So their target consumers up until that point were uh, essentially middle-aged men um, who were you know, in the kind of affluent class. And what we found, especially in more coastal states, is that a lot of young families wanted to have boats. And the reason why was because most of them had traveled quite extensively and had very adventurous lives before they settled down and had kids. And so having a boat was something they aspired to because it was a way to have adventures on a much more local basis without having to put their whole family on a plane or do something like that. And it was something they could do on a, have a, a daytime adventure without having to, you know, run and backpack in Europe or something like that. So we, um, and we found a lot of different segments, a lot of different nuances, and essentially it's completely transformed the way that the boating industry is marketing, um, as well as who they're marketing to. 
and taking into account this much younger consumer and what that looks like. What kind of time frame is around a project like that? I mean, that's such a, to your point, foundational. It's such a foundational piece of knowledge that would really kind of, it would inform the whole thing, right? It took a year. That took a solid year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. From, because we had to do some segmentation work at the beginning, even to understand who they were. And then that, once that was done, then we could do the ethnography. Um, And then we did a follow-up study to that. Um, at the other end, talking to people who had gotten rid of their votes and why, <laughs> because <laughs> part of the, the goal was to get people to buy votes, but then the other part was getting them to keep them. And so that's a right. whole other challenge. So once we added on that additional piece, that took two years. So these these ethnographic studies are much lengthier, uh, especially when we're doing a lot of travel around the country and multi-market, multi-segment, things like that. Um, they are a much bigger time commitment and they tend to be a little bit higher profile. So kind of on the flip side, we've seen a rise in technology, uh, market research technology firms. These are usually like more like quick hit type insight framework. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, not all of them, but but some of them. So many of them are focused on qualitative solutions at quantitative base sizes. What are you seeing that you think is interesting from a marketing research technology perspective that's kind of been up and coming in our space? So what you said about using a qualitative approach with quantitative sizes is making me think of um, Remesh specifically, which is, that's a really interesting tool to use when we have, sometimes clients will come to us with, they want qualitative work, but we can tell that they are very quant minded. And so when we have quant minded clients who they want to do a focus group, but they want, sometimes they'll say, oh, well, well, maybe we can have a hundred consumers and we can just do 15 or 20 focus groups or something like that, which isn't very efficient or cost effective. Uh, that's when we really recommend using these kinds of tools that are hybrid with qual and quant, uh, because we can get that qual nuance, but then we have the quant numbers to back it up. So that's, I think, really interesting. And I've, I've found that clients really like that. Conversely, the other approach is obviously to do qualitative and then do a more traditional survey or something like that afterward to validate the results. So it's collapsing these two phases into one. So that's I, that's interesting and exciting, and I'm finding clients like that quite a bit. Um, and then I'm also seeing a lot of tools for doing agile work, which is great. Um, I've done a lot of work uh, with Discuss.io in the past uh, where we're doing kind of agile insights. Uh, we I presented with some people from their team um, about some methodologies we had come up with where we can go from recruit to report in seven days. That's some really interesting and fast moving, fast paced kind of research, and that's that's something that I find really exciting. So discuss I was they've they've hit hard, right? They came out of the Unilever space and then the incubator that Unilever has, and then you know got quickly a global footprint, which I thought was very interesting from a respondent point of view and difficult to do. I mean, it's it's a lot, it's hard at a quant basis, but it's even harder at a qualitative basis to do that. Uh-huh. And do you see those technologies at whether Remesh or others as maybe channel partners? Because I still, and I don't, you know, again, I, this is just me talking. So I, I still think there's a big opportunity. There's a huge space for agencies to help the brands with even these, you know, the integration of these tools and utilization of the insights. What do you mean by channel partner? Tell me a little bit more about that. So, sorry, what I mean specifically, and I might've been using the wrong word, but is that, you know, 
and almost like a co-sell opportunity, right? Because they have large, presumably large customer bases and broad reach, but you know, they're, they're not necessarily deep within those relationships. So they're not, you know, hundred thousand, they're not doing a year long ethnography. Right. Right. <laughs> right. They're doing these quick hit insight sort of engagements, which of course they're SAS models and whatever. But my point is that they're, you know, hundreds or maybe a few thousand dollars as opposed to what, you know, a normal agency would charge for these types of projects. So my question really is in line with like, is there a partnership? Op do you see a partnership opportunities with, with, with technologies like this that, you know, it's like, Hey, do you want, uh, are you looking for a preferred partner to help expand or install the insights in a meaningful way inside of the inside of your existing or potentially new customer base? Sure. Discuss I always leveraged my agency for the last five years. So uh, we really, when Discuss I was in its infancy, so was my agency. And so we've been partnering on a lot of high profile projects over time. Most specifically, there's a global Mondelez study that they've presented with IEX and a few other conferences. There was a, a big global initiative and we partnered with them on that. Um, and that was run in, I think, 15 different countries. And so we partnered with them on a variety of different uh, qualitative services, um, including all the analysis and a lot of moderating and different things like that. So um, we've done quite a bit with them. And also we partnered with them in terms of uh, if they want this kind of recruit to report really quick turn stuff, our agency is trained and is knowledgeable on how to work that with them and the clients. So if clients come to them and they want one of these very quick turn projects, they'll leverage our agency um, on something like that. And so like we've done uh, a really good example of that. We worked on a, a study for a client. They had come up with a, a new food product and they were looking, they wanted to know how to position it. And so over the course of two days, we did 10 interviews in two days. And in between each interview, their design team was working on different kind of design elements for it and um, mark product positioning. And so we would do an interview. The design team would be listening in based off of what came out in the interview in terms of what people were interested in for this food product. They would design a label for that. And then we would test it on the next one. And then we just kept refining it and refining and refining it. Um, by the time we got to interview number 10, they had assets that they could show for a company-wide me meeting that they were going to be doing um, for presenting their new food product to the whole company. Um, and so we were able to get through that in just two days uh, in terms of the interviewing and then one more day to turn around the report. So it was really efficient and it was a very good tool um, for the kinds of things that they needed. Um, but I don't know how many other, right. That, that's a really specialized kind of approach that we've worked on with. Totally. Them. I mean, those partnerships take a ton of time to develop and it. And it's interesting that you're, you know, you're experiencing that kind of a connection with the, I mean, you know, there's a right place, right time. And then also, you know, fit is really important, but you know, the reason I bring it up is I had a, and I wrote a real brief blog post on LinkedIn recently on this, to this point, but I interviewed an, an insights professional uh, market research professional at uh, Georgia Pacific recently. And in that interview, she's telling me about how the face of partnerships has really evolved from a kind of this wholesale outsource model to a, you know, I might do the data collection, 
but I want somebody to walk alongside me on, you know, the analytics and implications to the business, right? So the size of her engagements, interestingly enough, are about the same, but, you know, they're just choosing to spend a lot more, a lot less money on the actual operational consideration and a lot more money on the implications side of it. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, which is what we've done in a lot of ways with Discuss. Last question, and then we'll get you out of the hot seat. So what is the one project, even though we've talked about a couple already, that you are most proud of? So we have an ongoing client relationship with a nonprofit organization that's in the oncology space. And so we do a lot of research for them. In fact, we, I think we're going to be working on, I think, 14 projects this year in 2019. Um, and so we do a lot of work on the, in the oncology space, trying to help make patients' lives better, essentially. And so there's a lot of different kinds of materials that we put together with them. We're assessing their needs. And this runs across a variety of different oncological spaces. And I think I'm most proud of that because it really feels like we're making a difference. We're talking with patients. We're talking with their caregivers. We're talking to people who are really at their most vulnerable and looking for ways to to make their lives better. And so I'd say that's that's probably what I'm most proud of at this point, just because it, it feels like it has a real impact on people's lives. Yeah. Gosh, that's actually, that's pretty, pretty meaningful point of view. I love that. I love that dual purpose. So my guest today has been Jenny Karubian. Jenny, if somebody wants to get in contact with you, how would they do that? Um, they can either go on the website, which is readytolaunchresearch.com, all spelled out, or they can email me at jenny at readytolaunchresearch.com or find me on LinkedIn, Jenny Karubian. Jenny, thanks so much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you. Everyone else, really appreciate your time. As always, I hope that you found a ton of value inside of this episode. Please reach out to Jenny if you have questions about any of this kind of stuff. I'm going to give you a little spoiler. She has some marketing expertise as well. So if I were you and I was in an agency, I would at least ping her and say, Jamin mentioned this. What do you think? That's all I got for you guys today. As always, like, share, goes a long ways in helping other people like yourself find these episodes. Have a great rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.